a, a couple of brief welcomes, a special welcomes this morning to David Lewis, who um, actually had the vision. had the vision for planting Springfield Church I'm also a bit too close to uh, Angela Bebekin who's the priest of St Michael's and uh, approached us about planting a congregation in Roundshaw which has doubled in the last year so Angela thank you so much for being here with us on this To Barbara Greatrex, who has always been so helpful and gracious towards us. We have our annual meal together next week, and um, I'm looking forward very much to that. But um, you know as well as I do, those of you at Springfield, how her staff have been so amazingly helpful coming out on Christmas Day, um, on Easter Day, to open up and help us have our services here. Barbara, thank you so much for being here. to the one and only Tim Humphreys, the first... <laughs> the first minister of Springfield. I'm not sure what that makes me, but you're welcome back, first minister. And, uh, and Stephen Coe, who, as you know, the vicar of Holy Trinity, our, our mother church. Stephen, you're so welcome. We're so pleased you could be with us here this morning. Just a very few um, housekeeping rules this morning. There will be three stations for taking communion this morning. The first one at the front here, and that will be in a line. So when you come forward, uh, they will show you how to uh, go in a line, receive in a line and come out. That's not our normal way here, but that's what we're doing this morning, so that as many as possible can take communion from the Archbishop. Uh, I'll be at the back, out of the entrance hall, uh, serving communion point there, and there's a third one, that Donna will be taking on the balcony. Uh, after the sermon this morning, we're having a creed, and then after that, um, those of you who have children who are part of Roadrunners, Crash or uh, Sparklers, could you then, you've got two songs worth, <laughs> to go out and get them in the normal way. So you'll be signing for them out in the normal way to ensure that we keep our children protected. I think that's all the notices until I remember later on what I've missed. Sorry, did I forget something? Photos. No, oh, yes, no photos. Sorry, guys. Um, we, are, we have got Gordon taking photos during the service, and we will make those readily available to anybody who wants to have them. But please, no photos during this service. Thank you. Now, the first and greatest privilege is to have Archbishop Rowan Williams here with us this morning. I didn't think it's going to be quite what it is. <laughs> but, Archbishop, can we... I'll move your chair... Nothing personal. <laughs> there, was a, there was a bit of a clue online, because about three weeks ago we were in your diary, and then um, online, and then suddenly we disappeared from that said diary about a couple of weeks ago. And um, so I wondered how long you've had to keep it quiet. Well, we only knew, really, on, on Thursday this oh, week. Right. Mm. Oh, okay. So it's all had to be done rather quickly, because 
being Archbishop of Canterbury does involve you in keeping in touch with people like the Prime Minister and the Queen about what your plans are, so we had to get it out rather promptly before somebody leaked it. So, so do you actually have to go to somewhere like the palace, and to do, or do you do it on the phone or letter, or how does that, how does that work? take a long time to explain. We had to, we had to set up <laughs> a kind of shadow system ready to go just in case this appointment came through on Thursday. Right. So we'd had lots of letters, lots of phone calls in the last couple of weeks in case the college decided they were inviting me. Ah, right. So they, there was kind of advance warning to them yeah. to do all that sort of thing. Oh, lovely. Great. Now, being, many people may not know, but being Archbishop of Canterbury isn't really one job, is it? No, I think of the last count it was about seven. Because... <laughs> um, the first thing, and it's really an important first thing, is you're the Bishop of Canterbury. You look after churches in East Kent. And although the Bishop of Dover does a great deal of that work on my behalf day to day, I think that's really the centre of it all, because that's the opportunity I have to go round the parishes on Sundays and just meet congregations like this morning. Um, a chance sometimes to go into schools, um, do a study day with the clergy, and for me, very importantly, the big events of Christmas and Easter are times we spend in Canterbury with, with our people, and I can visit the, um, the prisons and the hospices and some of the homeless centres at Christmas and at Easter. And all of that is, you know, the bottom level of it all. Then you're the senior bishop in the Church of England, and you have to chair all that goes with that. And you're the senior bishop of the Anglican Communion throughout the world, which means travelling quite a bit. And last year, that took me to five different African countries. Um, this year, it's going to take me to New Zealand and Papua New Guinea. And we were thinking of a trip to China, but that didn't prove possible this year. So that's just three of a, a range of responsibilities, and there are some others too. Is, do you think the job's becoming impossible for one person? I mean, it, it seems like you're quite overwhelmed sometimes with what you're expected of, of you. Um, people have been saying that it's impossible for one person for about 80 years. <laughs> and, um, people have gone on doing it. I suppose, just in the nature of the case, as time goes on, there are little adjustments that happen. Um, so I think, for example, that um, the Bishop of Dover now does a lot more in the Diocese of Canterbury than might have been the case 60 years ago, because it's just not realistic to try and run a diocese in a contemporary way with all these other things as well. And what, what are you going to miss most? I think I'm going to miss some of the, the trips to developing countries. And I said last year I'd been in five different African countries. And the visit especially to, to Congo last summer and to Kenya, those were amazingly moving. To see what the church at grassroots in these countries can do and does do with people who are suffering desperately with women who have been raped in the Civil War, with children who have been abducted and uh, coerced into militias. And the church is there for them. And to see that on the ground, it's such a privilege to, to see and understand what, what our church can do there. And although I hope to keep some contacts in the developing world and with development issues, that regular contact is something very, very special and very enriching. Couldn't agree more, but we're, we're going to do a bit of that. We have some visitors in Kenya this morning who'll be really? talking oh, later. Wonderful. So, wonderful. Um, you mentioned in your uh, interview last week that two things that you're most pleased about, I suppose, in the last 10 years are the um, Anglican Alliance umbrella with development and aid mm -hmm. overseas and fresh expressions. Yes. Now, what convinced you of the need for fresh expressions? God. 
All the good places start. In the sense that when I, when I was working, when I was working in Wales, I was more and more conscious of new things happening. Not things that um, I or the diocese had invented, but things that were just growing up, new kinds of community emerging, new sorts of ministry developing. And more and more in my, the last three or four years, especially when I was Bishop of Monmouth in Wales, seeing God at work in these unexpected contexts, um, seeing the development of a new church on a housing estate in Newport, seeing an, an amazingly creative youth ministry in East Cardiff, the development of a healing ministry in Cumbran. And when I first became Archbishop of Canterbury, I thought, well, there ought to be some way of connecting all that with the mainstream of the church more effectively, more intentionally. And that was just the time when Graham Cray was publishing his report on the mission-shaped church. And it seemed like one of those moments that God had prepared, things slotted together. So, and what do you think the wider church needs to learn from the fresh expressions? What can it learn in a general context? Church always begins with what God is doing. The church exists not because people decide to club together to, um, I don't know, to start a, a society. The church begins with a lot of people, as it were, drawn into one room by the force of Jesus' personality in life and death and resurrection and kind of looking at each other and thinking, what are we all doing here together and working it out? And that's, that's I think, how the church really begins to generate itself or rather God begins to generate the church. So when you see God at work in these settings, you see that the initiative lies with God. A healthy church is one that constantly points to the God who takes these initiatives and invites people into that sort of fellowship with Jesus. And you take it from there, I think. Yes. I, mean, well, I suppose the other side, of course, the coin is sometimes new expressions can become a bit full of themselves, shall we say. Yes. And, yes, and so what would you like fresh expressions, churches, maybe like Springfield, to mm. remember about uh, the rest of the church? I suppose, remember, you're, you're not the first people to read the Bible. <laughs> and there's, there's 20 centuries of people praying and thinking through scripture and passing on their wisdom that's what we mean by tradition and I, it'd be wonderful if, if we could recover a really lively and positive sense of what tradition meant not this great weight pressing down on you this is how we've always done it but there's this great reservoir of experience and wisdom which we're free to draw on and, and grow with and I I think that is one lesson that all new kinds of congregation have to bear in mind. The more traditional, traditionally mainstream kinds of church need to know that the church is always being restored and renewed from unexpected places. The new renewing bits of the church need to remember that God has not abandoned his church over 20, 20 centuries and has been giving gifts all the way through to learn from. So it's that balance, what I once called the mixed economy the church, which I think keeps us, keeps us fit. Yeah. Now, moving on slightly, you had a recent conversation with Richard Dawkins in Oxford, mm. um, <laughs> if you like, the, the new high priest of the atheist movement. Do you get nervous before set pieces like that? Yes. Um, I was quite, quite nervous about that, really, because I never feel I'm at my best in, in debate. Um, 
you, you have to be quick on your feet and sort of clever and and slick and um, I, I would feel a bit anxious about that. I like to think about think about what I say and and I'm not always very good with words. So um, yes, I was nervous, but I asked lots of people to pray, and it's, it's a bit different, but. I had the same sort of experience last October when I went to meet President Mugabe in Zimbabwe oh, yes. uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and asked a lot of people to pray. And beforehand, I thought, what on earth is this going to be like? And as soon as it started, whether it was Mugabe or Dawkins, I just felt, well, a lot of people are doing the heavy lifting. I ought to be able to relax. And, and mysteriously, it's possible. And, and it was remarkable, actually, how well that debate went in terms of as a conversation it between like, the two of you. Yes, I yes. mean, actually... Some of the, the things that he actually um, responded to, I thought, very interesting. It felt more like a conversation than a, a kind of head-to-head. And because I know him a bit and, and like him as a person, and we have, you know, we have a respectful relationship in that sense, it didn't feel too much like a gladiator's combat. No, it didn't feel like it. But on a general point on the rise of the new atheists, if you like, the um, secularists, do you think actually that the real issue for them is not necessarily Christianity, but actually radical Islam? And that actually it's more of a, a reaction against, if you like, radical Islam, and we are a surrogate for that. That's a very interesting point, and I think there's a lot of truth in it. It's, it's the last decade, isn't it, that's seen the great rise of um, anxious secularism, real suspicion of religion in mm. public. And I think it, it is 9-11 that brought that to a head in some ways. Mm. And because we're also in a culture where a lot of people simply don't know how religions work, whether Christianity or anything else. I've sometimes said that the trouble with some government initiatives is that they assume either that vicars are imams in dog collars or that imams are vicars in turbans. You know, it's, that there's, there's one way of being religious. Either you're a sort of committed fanatic who wants to subordinate the whole of society to your agenda, or you're a sort of woolly liberal um, who can be persuaded somehow to go along with whatever's happening in society. And the church is neither of those things. The church is what it is. It's the body of Christ. It's the new creation. It's, it's the assembly of Christ's friends with good news to share, and that doesn't fit neatly into either of those categories. I guess that some Muslims would want to say, look, we're, we're not coming with massive political agendas either. We want, we want to let you know about the God we love and try to serve. But that, you know, that doesn't get across very readily to no. people in, in the media sometimes, in politics too. But does it also open opportunity for the church? Because I've never known the church be so talked about. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it does open opportunities. And I, I often think back to a time when I was invited by a friend of mine to speak to, to her GCSE religious studies class in, um, in North London years ago and she was doing a term on the parables and clearly none of the children in her class had any notion of the parables, they'd never heard the story of the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son and when you tell those stories for the first time they have an amazing effect because you know they are pretty good stories and to be able to talk about something that is fresh unfamiliar to people and get across the newness of things that we're if you like, too familiar with, that's a great privilege so I think you're right, I think it is an opportunity Now you've sat in the middle of some of the most fractious debates in society and the church in the last decade and um, received criticism 
virtually from all sides. What has sustained you? Well, um, I suppose there's the one word answer again. (laughs) And making sure that the discipline of daily silence and listening to God doesn't doesn't crumble under the pressure. And the generous prayers of so many people who really do regularly support us, myself and my family, in prayer. That's massively important. And knowing that that's going on is, is a great gift. And also there's the sense that, as I've sometimes put it, I know at the end of the day that I'm not answerable to the editor of The Guardian or The Daily Mail. <laughs> I'm answerable to, to my saviour. Yeah. <laughs> and just trying to keep that in focus, yeah. which is sometimes difficult, because of yeah. course all this hurts. Yeah, yeah. You know, why wouldn't it? Yeah, quite. But um, ultimately, ultimately, you're not answerable to anybody except your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and the Lord of the Church. I remember I met in South Africa many, many years ago a wonderful man who'd had a a really horrific experience with the then government of South Africa. He'd been under house arrest, he'd been stalked and persecuted in all sorts of ways. And I said at the end of our meeting, it's so important to hear what you have to say. You're you're a very important person to so many of us. And he shrugged his shoulders and said, well, you know, you get to the point where you know that they can't really touch you. And what he meant by that was he knew who he was answerable to. Now, in a tiny, tiny way, I understand about, you know, one millimetre's worth of what what that means. But you have been remarkably able to come off with that gracefully in your ten years. Well, it's kind of you to say so. Um, I've still got nine months to make a real mess of things. (laughs) (laughs) I... I... (laughs) Are you hopeful about the future of the Church of England? Yes, colossally. Um, Partly because I'm hopeful about God, who doesn't give up on any church. Um, Partly because I see so many good things at grassroots. The stories that don't get into the press, because nobody wants to read good news, do they? And the sense that the church is is stirring in all kinds of ways, as represented by a place like this, that the church remains in extraordinary ways, often in the most deprived and challenged communities, a community that people trust, a place people trust. And I've quoted endlessly something one of my old students used to say, that the church is where you put the stuff that won't go anywhere else in our society. You know, the, the anger, the anxiety, the, the celebration, the lostness, the foundness. Mm. Nowhere else in society holds all of that. There's deep and important and difficult things for people. And who do you think has been the most influential person in your life, in your spiritual journey? Other than Jesus. Yeah. Two people, I think. One was my vicar when I was a teenager, who was an absolutely brilliant priest, somebody whose humility and integrity and insight were just a daily inspiration for me. I I can't tell you how fortunate I was to have somebody like that. He was 26 years in the same parish and devotedly served that parish without looking for any any larger stage or um, opportunity. 
And the humility thing, I suppose it's because I remember when I was a stroppy teenager arguing with him about things and his willingness to, to listen and not just not to throw me out of the vicarage in exasperation. <laughs> and that patience, that generosity of spirit. So he had a huge impact. and He made me see what a, what a real priest was like. And then a bit later on, um, when I was a student, meeting an old Benedictine monk who lived in a monastery in the Isle of Wight. And for many, many years, really up to his death, he was another person who kept me sane and anchored, somebody who again had had a very unobtrusive life. He'd become a monk at the age of 18. He'd hardly ever left his monastery. But he had a warmth and a wisdom and an unshockability which was extraordinary. And yes, those two people really marked me, held me, inspired me. And final question. No, how long... My watch has stopped. Oh, I'm okay. Um, this is far more fun, isn't it? What, what's been your most... Mo- I mean, you've already talked about overseas visits, but what's been your most moving overseas visit? Difficult to say. Congo last year comes very, very high on the list because an evening I spent with about 30 or 40 young people who had been abducted as teenagers from their villages taken into the militias they'd been trained in killing they'd, they'd done terrible things and they'd had terrible things done to them the women had been abused sexually as well as abused in other ways and the church had, had not given up on them in many cases people from local congregations had literally gone out into the bush to look for them to go to the militias and say we want our children back and Person after person in that group said, if it wasn't for the church's faithfulness to us, we'd, you know, we'd still be in, in a kind of hell. So that was unforgettable, absolutely unforgettable. That's the church being itself mm. in a major way. And then a very early visit I made to the Solomon Islands in the Pacific. It was about a year after the civil war in the islands had ended. And during that civil war, seven members of the Melanesian Brotherhood, which is a kind of monastic order in the islands, had worked as peacemakers, and they'd been killed in cold blood by one of the rebel groups. And that had so shocked the islands that it had kind of triggered a peacemaking process. And I was there a year after that, and able to dedicate the memorial to those seven martyrs. But also I was able to go into one of the prisons in Honiara, and meet one of the militia leaders who'd been involved in, in all this and pray with him. And that was, that yeah. was an extraordinary moment too. So I mean, these are the, the privileges that the post brings. Yes. You're, you're allowed into these very deep places with people. I can imagine. I'm going frivolous now. As is my nature. Um, I was rather excited the other day. My, my youth pastor had been telling me, finding out lots of different facts about you. Oh dear. <laughs> and she announced that... Do you know where she lives? <laughs> you've already met her. She announced that you were into Blackberries. And I said, oh, that is exciting. I've got black- I love Blackberries as well. And she said, no, not Blackberries. Blackberries. So is this a time for a confession here? Your des- do you like Blackberries to wear? 
I do like blackberries to wear, yes. yes <laughs> I, I keep losing them. <laughs> Favourite composer? Bach. Favourite author? Um, classically, probably Dickens' contemporary A.S. Byatt. If you could only rescue one possession, assuming all your beloved were safe, what would it be? No idea. Um, Don't come to one of our small groups with the classic question. I know. know. (laughs) Favourite film? Um, The Muppet Christmas Carol. (laughs) (laughs) Favourite book? Too many to name. Okay. Favourite comedian? Um, Contemporary? Either, any? Um, Dylan Moran. Okay. Favourite TV programme? You've been linked to quite a few over the years. I have, yes. I still have a very soft spot for Father Ted. (laughs) (laughs) If you could sit down, final questions, if you could sit down for dinner with anyone on the planet, who would it be? Living today? Yep. Hmm. Or maybe not. Maybe the last hundred years. Last hundred years. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Right. Yeah. Archbishop, thank you. Thank you. Oh, yes. Well, I've already welcomed you. I think they know you well enough. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. Thank you for having me here this morning. It's a great joy to be able to share this fellowship with you and this celebration. And I think at this stage, all I want to say to you as a church family is many happy returns. We meet as God's people, and we meet as people who forget how to be God's people all the time. So as we gather to worship our Saviour, let us, in a moment of silence, think about where we have failed and fallen short, and ask for the light of God's Holy Spirit to show us what we need, and the strength of God's Holy Spirit to remake our lives in Christ's image. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins, to be our advocate in heaven, and to bring us to eternal life. Let us confess our sins in penitence and faith, firmly resolved to keep God's commandments, and to live in love and peace with all. We say together, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our neighbour in thought and word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. We are truly sorry and repent of all our sins for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and keep you in life eternal, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now let us worship God in song.